Well, it will probably not come as a surprise that what actually constitutes a matter of indifference is also a controversial topic in and of itself. And so, without hesitation, we're jumping back into the deep end. Here's George. Now, all of this sounds a lot like the point I'm trying to make here. But Luther's treatises were written when it seemed like the only real distinctions in theology and worship were to be found between Protestants and the Roman Catholic Church, and, to a degree, within a handful of Protestant sects. Even at that, bitter division ensued over what constituted, quote, matters of indifference. Some felt, for instance, that the concept of transubstantiation and the practice of veneration of the saints, both approved within the Catholic Church, should be permitted, though not required, in order to bring peace among the churches. Others found such a suggestion a direct threat to the faith itself and fought against it viciously. These issues are still argued today, often still with bitter denunciation of those on the other side or those who might attempt to explain the other side, such as I have in this book. I will suggest Luther didn't go nearly far enough. And the divisions in the church today make Luther's time look like unruffled, sweet harmony. We really have to move past the non-essentials if we are to embody the unity for which Christ prayed. The risk in even broaching this topic is the fury that arises when religious people fear that their beliefs and practices are being attacked and calling any one of them non-essential, even with careful definition of what this means, is often heard as a threat to the faith. Recall Matthew Henry's insight. If all the disciples of Christ were of one mind and kept the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, their enemies would be deprived of their chief advantages against them. But Satan's maxim has always been to divide that he may conquer, and few Christians are sufficiently aware of his designs. That's Matthew Henry. I believe that with care, willingness, and charity for each other, there is a path beyond our divisions to a common place of safety and godly mutual respect to reconciliation. So let's talk about how, how, how to reconcile. I want to begin here with a series of examples on how reconciliation can be applied with actual followers of Jesus who differ markedly in their concepts, doctrines, sub-doctrines, worship, polity, hermeneutics, dress codes, and more. In other words, with Christians who often have little or nothing to say to each other, and even less to do with each other, except perhaps in derision and distancing themselves, lest they be tainted by the other's embodiment of the faith. 
If you begin to live as a reconciler, an ambassador for the gospel, and are able to find the unity Jesus prayed for with others who differ in their concepts, doctrines, and so on, visit the website for this book, whatwebelieveandwhy.com, and please share your story with me. I will post those that are appropriate online and in future editions and let this section on application and reconciliation grow. Now, rather than simply proclaim the vital importance of reconciliation and the differences that the love of Christ can overcome, let me cite a couple of explicit examples of how it can be applied. Note that I am not saying that the differences are overcome by conformity to a single doctrine or view, but rather by respecting other believers as living life in Christ, though differently. It is, if you would, the rabbinic way, where two deep understandings and convictions are adjacent, respected, with neither eliminating the other. For instance, Consider this classic and often vitriolic debate in the church. Are women allowed in ministry? Are women allowed in ministry? Well, how do we approach this question? One of the challenges in addressing the issue of women in ministry is that we come at it with a view shaped both by our Christian traditions and by the views and political methods of our culture. These are often so embedded in our ways of thinking that we don't even realize the biases or how they affect what we perceive or approve. In some cultures, those who believe that there should be a change in the way things are done would not dare do more than humbly request the appropriate authority to consider the change. In other cultures, not even this much would be dared. Acceptance of the status quo would be expected regardless of whether you agreed or not. Opposition to it would be swiftly punished. In still others, rallies would be organized, protests taken to the streets, and the rights of the disadvantaged would be proclaimed and struggled for until the change was accomplished. In the United States, in many other countries, the last approach is common, and it obviously affects how we think about gender relations, and in particular, with regard to the role of women in ministry. While some would insist that the Bible does not permit women as leaders in the church, others would counter that women have the right to be leaders in the church. Now, there are many other positions on this issue, and I'm not attempting to be comprehensive on the variety of views. I'm merely using these two to illustrate a point about how we approach issues where we differ. I'm also not arguing for one view against the other, just observing that the arguments are not even using the same concepts or the same categories of understanding or advocacy. So, Let's take a few moments to unpack this illustrative disagreement. I'm going to use terminology for ministry leadership 
that is common to Lutheran, Anglican, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox polity, among others, but uncommon in Baptist, Presbyterian, and most other Protestant usage. Bear with me if you would. The point is not about title here, but role. Let's consider two of the many varying concepts of women in ministry. Concept number one, women cannot be priests. One view would assert that women are created in such a way as childbearers, nurturers, and helpers to men that they are ontologically unable to be leaders in their very being, in the same way a lily cannot be an oak tree. This view would say that lilies and oak trees are both valuable plants, but neither can presume to be the other. Each should be in its God-given role. It is an ontology issue. This position would be supported by selected verses from Scripture and by hermeneutical guidelines, concepts, used to interpret those verses. A second view would say that women are the equals of men, intellectually and in every other way, have all the rights of men in this society, and that anyone in authority who would deny them equal opportunity, including in leadership in the church, should be fought. The rights of women should not be denied, and the church authorities should be struggled with until they relent, until the rights are granted. This would be seen as a prophetic action to force the right thing to be accomplished. It is a justice issue. This position would be supported by selected verses from Scripture and by hermeneutical guidelines, concepts, used to interpret those verses. The debate is over whether the Bible conceives of women ontologically as able to be leaders, teachers, pastors, deacons, priests, evangelists, bishops, or whatever. And there are advocates who argue from Scripture on both sides of this issue and in between another thousand positions. Those men and women who seriously believe that the Bible does not ontologically conceive of a woman as a pastor or priest find themselves accused of sin for denying justice. That is, the rights supporters say that the advocates of a male-only priesthood or pastorate are against progress for the oppressed, against justice, and therefore against God. We'll come and look at the other side of this issue when we gather again next time. To what extent can women serve in ministry? Can you think of many topics that have caused more friction within the church? This is one of the more powerful debates. And yet, in true form, George will continue his scholarly and compassionate examination of how to bring reconciliation to this debate when we continue next time. We do invite you to join us. WhatWeBelieveAndWhy.com is where you can get your own copy of the book on which this program is based. 